The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Previously on The Ascent of Board Games. The long-threatened roll-and-move episode. That fundamentally is not bad design. It's everything else around that design is, I think, what's really important. Bad things happen to good people. And bad things include rolling a four. The oldest roll-and-move type game that we know of is Backgammon. I'm not going to argue that Monopoly is a good game. It's Monopoly probably game. it's I'll probably it. not as bad as you think it is. They've made an abomination called Careers for Girls. So, million and spiel. You want to make a million dollars. You start with $5. Dinosaurs of the Lost World is a lot like careers. And now the thrilling conclusion of Roland Move Games. I want to talk about three games kind of here, another style roll and move. This is Midnight Party, Viva Pamplona, and Viva Topo, which are very similar games. I mean, the structure of the game is you have a bunch of pawns, and there's something chasing you. And you have to keep those pawns alive or not. Decide which ones to sacrifice, which ones to move. You only get one or two die rolls in each of these games. You kind of have to weigh, you know, which ones are worth saving if they're far enough ahead. I think the most pure expression of this is actually Viva Topo, which is a kid's game where you're mice trying to reach the fabled land of cheese being chased by a cat. And basically at certain times you can pull the mice off the track onto a space which gives you a small number of wheels of cheese, one or two trivial pursuit triangles of cheese, whereas you can make it all the way in, you get a whole wheel of cheese. So it's kind of a risk-reward thing where it's like, okay, I'll pull off here because I'm close to the cat, but no, we'll have to sacrifice Donald because poor guy is just going to get eaten by the cat. (laughs) I couldn't find this on The Geek because it is Viva! Topo. Yes, oh, it's, oops, it's yeah, typoed in the uh, It's thing. typoed yes. in our thing, yeah. Yeah, it is Viva Topo. Viva Pamplona is kind of a similar thing, except it's themed on the running of the bulls. And the original Midnight Party is the ghost called Hugo, who is chasing you, and you can go hide in closets, basically trying to keep as many of your people unscared from Hugo over three rounds. Same kind of game, similar kind of ideas, where you're having to move multiple pawns and try not to get them eaten, scared devoured whatever trampled yeah hmm. i thought there was one more similar one where you had to bow to caesar at some point nope that's a racing game okay. cherry racing ave caesar ah uh, yes so next up would be sandy with key to the kingdom hello and welcome to key to the kingdom <laughs> so key to the kingdom was a game that was originally a waddington's from 1990 designed by a gentleman called paul bennett but restoration games has done a new version that came out in 2021 with a, I don't know, spruce redesign, what do you say? That was a pretty heavy redesign, actually. But it's Rob Davio, of course. Mm. Well, actually, it's uh, not. It's not. It's what? Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rosset. Oh, Whoa, Rob really? Davio's okay. name's not on this game. Damn. Okay. 
for those that have been listening to the podcast for a while, this is the adventure game with the fold-out board. I was like, this sounds so familiar. Yeah, we talked about it in the changing boards episode. It's it's like you flip out section. It does have a changing board, but that was in the original. The gameplay is improved. And yes, you're right. Under additional game development, we have Rob Davio. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Noah Cohen, Justin D. Jacobson, and Brian Neff to get them all in because it's only fair. Mm-hmm. In the credits for the Restoration Games version, they say that Paul Bennett developed this game as a way to play Dungeons and Dragons with an entire family just out of the box. So it's another one inspired by our uh, role-playing stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is, you roll around the board, everybody gets a, a character that has its own special powers, and you roll the dice to move around the board, and there's all kinds of different spaces, including the blank ones that don't really do anything that are called boring spaces. I think it's interesting that some characters' special powers allow them to do things if they land on a boring space. Nice. You land on a boring space, you heal or do something. So mm-hmm. that kind of takes some of the sting out of that. I love that they've officially titled them boring spaces. They're like, yeah, we get it. Yeah. yeah. That is exactly what they called them in this book. <laughs> It's got the board that opens out when you hit the whirlpool and you you go on minor adventures and you go on key adventures. And the idea, the object is to collect the three parts of the key and then go fight the clown demon, which I thought the clowns were an interesting <laughs> choice here. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Clown demon. Yep. There's, a, there's actually a lot of clever in this one, too. There is a lot of clever. You have cards or objects that will let you manipulate your dice rolls. You can get magic items, which help you do other things. Permanent special powers. Yeah, permanent special Mm -hmm. powers. Your objects go away when you use them. Uh, You can get companions. Actually, better, your objects don't go away. You actually flip them over. Oh, that's right. They're exhausted. And if you give up your turn, you can, like, refresh three. And you can basically, on a turn, burn as many of these plus minus. Most of the objects give you plus minus points. You just kind of flip them over to change your die roll at will. So that's cool. So it really mitigates the randomness of the roll and move. And one thing that's really important, when you're going for a key, you have to make like five or six rolls, either progressively higher or hitting exact numbers or some other theme that kind of carries through the series of the, the exact rolls. There's an entire paragraph book that kind of explains what each section of the board is. So when you go in, you're not quite sure what it is. But you have to do five or six rolls in a row, and you mm. will burn your items like crazy going Believe through some, it. Yeah. some of those. And, yeah. and some of your And you can still fail. <laughs> but you can also have companions that can, you know, in certain adventures, oh, if you have X companion, you can skip this roll. That seems good. Right? The, yeah. the companions were fabulous, because I went the companion route. I didn't win, mm-hmm. but went the companion route, and they were really helpful. I do want to take a moment just to appreciate at least in the Restoration Games version, that all of the characters, encounters, magic items are all alliterative. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm. Some some of them are a little bit of a stretch, but like, you know, there's the cunning cockroach, the frenzied frog, the slurring seer. Mike, you didn't but mention that the cunning cockroach is holding a pipe. That's my favorite part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but then you've got the novice knight, where mm. novice is spelt with a K. Ugh. <laughs> A silent. Oh, that's bad. Okay. That's terrible. 
<laughs> man. So, you know, some of them are a stretch, but definitely you can see somebody sitting in a design room just going like, all right, people, we need like 20 more alliterations. Let's do this. One for every letter of the alphabet. Go. <laughs> yeah. But it's fun. It makes it funner for kids, which was part of the point was to be able to play it with kids. Sure. The artwork is lovely. Yeah. All right. I remember this one sounded interesting when you first talked about the original version. It's neat to see the revised version. Sounds like it's a good. Yeah, the original version's a little clunky. The boards are very similar, and it has a lot of the same adventure kind of things and stuff. But the mechanics are cleaned up. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, items were something you gained rarely over time in the first one, as opposed to being the dice manipulation. And you had to have an item to like get into certain adventures or whatever. And so it was much less a part of the game in some ways. We are pretty big fans of Restoration Games. Yeah. Hashtag not sponsored. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this one they knocked out of the park. I think it's actually a really good game. Very cool. And was surprised at how good compared to the original. So now... I think we have a slightly crazy game. Slightly crazy game. Fast food franchise from 1992. That's the one. Designed by Tom Lehman. And this is probably the game that made me want to talk about this particular set of things. Fast food franchise is the monopolyish roll and move that fixes all the things and all the problems. Not really, but <laughs> it is a really amazing game that should be reprinted, played loved you do have to like business games so it is first of all hideously ugly yeah excellent <laughs> god is it ugly it's a little dry basically you are competing fast food franchises where some of those include some steak and shake or family restaurant kind of things mm -hmm. and the board is black and white with a bunch of unicolored tiles that go everywhere the middle of the board is given over to a strange gridded representation of the United States with various large cities and walls that you're not allowed to build through. And when you actually play the game, you will, when you first land on a city, you can open your first lovely store and you pick an entire type of food, whether it be ice cream, pizza, burgers, family steakhouse or whatever, mm -hmm. and open your first restaurant, putting it down. If anyone lands on that space in that city, they're going to pay you rent. So you get the monopoly thing going there. Then everything is different. First of all, pretty much every corner of the board gives you something when you pass it, not like when you land on it. Some rules of monopoly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, only the go where you get right. income. Here you get income based on not just, you get a basic minimum income. But when you go around back to start, you get income based on the number of franchises you own, but you also have to pay upkeep on franchises, on advertising. So advertising is a thing. If you land on an advertising space, you can take an advertising slip, which are different depending on which company you have, and place it on that advertising. It will move someone ahead to the next space of that color. Uh, so just force them to go to your But also side. speeds them up so they get more mm -hmm. income because, and so you have to worry about, you know, not placing it too far ahead because if you're moving them all the way around the board, mm -hmm. it's far more valuable for them to get the extra income unless they're paying way too much for advertising. You also get to place a free franchise. So in the middle of the board, you end up placing just individual stores. So if you land on a city again where you already have a franchise, you can buy another tile and place it next to it. 
And the amount that someone has to pay is based on the number of restaurants in a connected chain connected to that city. If you happen to have a chain that connects between multiple cities, further improvements to that chain will improve the income for all those cities. So you desperately want to get franchises close to each other for that city, as well as make sure you connect them for better income. And each of the companies is different depending on how many slips it has for how many cities it can open in, how many franchises it can have, how many advertising slips, Hmm. and how much a franchise costs for that particular thing. I mean, it seems conceptually interesting. I'm just looking at pictures of the board, and this looks like one of those games that a ceiling fan or a good sneeze (laughs) could ruin the entire game. These are like inch and a half tiles, so they're pretty big. Okay. Mercifully. But yeah, it's all chits and all tiles and, oh my God, hideously ugly and pay for money. Mm-hmm. But because of the way you can manipulate the board with advertisements, because you're actually playing a weird connection game in the middle of the board, and because you're getting things every time you cross a quarter of the board, you're always getting something. And that cycle, again, that cycle I referred to in kind of million and spiel of how things happen in the game, suddenly makes it a surprisingly tricky and far deeper game than Monopoly. There is still randomness. And I think ice cream and pizza are a little too overvalued. Okay. I think some of the math could use some adjustment. Ice cream and pizza are OP, please nerf. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Or bring up at least some of the others. Because I think if you start a family-style steakhouse as your first one, I think you're doomed to failure pretty much. But if you have an ice cream for initial income that you then use to boost a family steakhouse, that might work. And you can have two or three franchises going. But Frank, what happens when someone picks to do a chicken surprise? Do people actually go to that restaurant? I sure wouldn't. That sounds awful. <laughs> the surprise salmonella? Because that's the only thing that makes any sort of sense. Uh, the surprise is it's all chicken gizzards. There was a place <laughs> I went to Chattanooga that was all chicken gizzards. Uh, so that's commitment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is... Oh, they had livers. Sorry. Oh, so well, they, they sure. did. They did uh, branch oh, out. That makes it better. <laughs> so this is not the one I was thinking of. What's the sort of fast food themed game? You're thinking of oh, uh, um, Food Chain Magnet. Food Chain Magnet. Yes. Thank you. That's the one I was, I was like, this doesn't look at all like I remember because it's I a different game. Food Chain Magnet. Oh, yeah, totally. And I do like Food Chain Magnet. I actually think I like fast food franchise better. Mm-hmm. And it is... Fast food franchise is easily the best roll and move ever made. And I think it was oh. the first And I think it was the first game by Tom Lehman. Okay. You know, he went on to do things like Dice Realms, To Court the King. Race for the Galaxy. Oh yeah, duh. <laughs> so some people have heard of that one, yeah. Yeah, totally. All right, very cool. I think we have one more in the Frank zone. Oh, Nizza, yeah. Let's talk about Wolfgang Kramer, nineteen ninety three, published by uh, FX Schmid. And Wolfgang Kramer is well known for mm-hmm. El Grande. Sorry, I just I do just not laugh at, the, at Wolfgang Kramer. <laughs> I just looked at a picture of Nizza, and do you know what I wasn't expecting? What bondage? Puns? I was not expecting meeples with tiny little handcuffs on. Them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guess what? Nizza is about thieves and handcuffs and rooftops and. This is a race game, uh, effectively, and you are thieves racing along the rooftops of a very kind of Italian seaside Riviera city. 
trying to get to basically open their safes on the roof. And you have to basically get a suitcase from one safe, close the safe and put it in another safe and then run to the helicopter. I don't know why safes are on rooftops or several things. Because they're hard to get to. <laughs> oh, yeah. Without totally. special baffles. Sure. <laughs> but each die has a whole bunch of different symbols and different movement types. One of which is the boring one is there are spaces on the bottom all the way at the street and you can move up, you know, a space on the street. Much cooler is the ladder, which you have a, a little tiny ladder token where you put the ladder token next to your pawn and then move your pawn to the other end of the ladder token. There are no spaces once you're on the buildings and moving along rooftops. But more important are the plastic posts set into the board and all those varying length chains, which are different lengths, by the way. Mm. And two things let you move chains between the pegs, between adjacent pegs, as well as swing on those rings. So if you're within reach of one end of one of those things on a, a, a ring, you can basically loop it around your pawn and then just swing over to another building. We're definitely going to need to include some pictures because that is very hard to describe I mean, yeah, in an audio all, format. It's, it's almost a miniatures game with little pegs that you're you know, using those pegs and chains to move along. So it's like one end is around the character. So do you need to touch the other peg or you basically the chain needs to be on the peg because the chains uh -huh. always are on the pegs right and basically if you're within range of that chain you loop it around your character and then move your character anywhere within the range uh, i chain. see okay so that's so, yeah swing sure okay and it's generally faster and more flexible to move along the rooftops so the roll and move is only when you're on the streets with the least interesting part well, no, you actually roll and you've got five dice and the uh, symbols that come oh, up. Oh, it's the symbols that come up, right. Symbols that come up. And you can do the Yahtzee things. You can re-roll three times. And whatever symbol comes up or whatever actions you get to move. Ah, so this is almost the precursor of a game we're going to be talking about in a little bit. Yeah, totally. You're not rolling numbers, you're rolling symbols. Interesting. But also some weird miniature game kind of movement that's, mm -hmm. you know, with the ladder and the chains and things. It's one of those, wow, that's really clever. Hmm. I have never heard of this game. I'm getting the impression it was never released in English. Correct. Yeah, it's only German. Oh, well. It was released in German, takes place in France with the city having an Italian name. Because apparently it's supposed to be in Nice. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Which is referred to as Nizza. It's just, I, I, yeah. <laughs> Europe is weird, okay? Huh. Yeah, German games in there. German games have to be based on a city. That's just like sure. one of those rules. Sure. All right. Jason, take us out of the Frank zone. Drive <laughs> us out of the Frank zone. Uh, there we go. Yeah, a nice segue. So yeah, that's the game we're going to discuss here is one I played a long, long time ago called, depending on which version you've got, it's Formula Day or it got re-released as Formula D later on. The original game came out in 1997 by Euro Games, designed by Laurent Lavar and Eric Randall. Sure. Sounds like I nailed that. <laughs> so this is F1 racing. You've got a giant board that's got a number of spaces, and where it gets interesting is how you move around on the race. And it's a typical race, trying to be the first one to cross the finish line, of course. But the idea here is you've, you've got different gears in your F1 race car, and each of the gears correspond to a different die with different values on it. So the lower gears are going to have a certain number range. The higher gears are going to have a higher number range, indicating how many spaces you can move. Where the game gets interesting is when you get to a turn, 
Inside of turns, you have to make a certain number of stops indicated by the lines in the actual board itself. If you don't make those stops, I don't know in the original one, in the Formula D version, the version I played, you would do damage to your car and you had certain stats where you could burn up your brakes or your tires to compensate for overshooting your turn. Does anyone remember how yep. it worked in Formula that's Day? That's t- the original, yeah, that's totally how it works. Okay, same thing. So yeah, you have a certain number of things, and if you run out of any of those resources, well, you're going to crash and you're out of the game. So a lot of the game is just balancing, okay, well, I have to make a turn, I'm going to go into a lower gear and slow down. But I don't want to slow down too much, or else I'm going to give up too much track position. So it's a really difficult (laughs) balancing game, and one I'm particularly bad at, that you have to nail the number of stops you need inside of your turns, while also maximizing the range of your die by being in a high enough gear that you can shoot out of that turn into the straightaway and make up a lot of track to surpass your opponents. (laughs) The Formula D version also introduced things like individual racers that had, like I think, single-use powers. My favorite one being one where a guy could throw his radio at someone else and damage their vehicle. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's got to be based on a thing that actually happened in a Formula One race. I mean, it wouldn't point. surprise me. But yeah, I have some friends who used to play this at uh, Gen Con every year in the tournament, and they did very, very well, usually placing you know in the top 10 of those tournaments. So it was something I always keep an eye on just because my friends love playing it so much. But for me personally... The game tends to take too long. <laughs> I'm looking at the play times. Like, Formula Day claims two hours, which I think is pretty accurate. Formula D yeah. claims an hour, which I don't see how that's even possible. <laughs> yeah. Now, if I remember correctly, like, if you're in one of the higher gears in your role, because I think it goes up to like a D20, doesn't it? Does, it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> is it is it a regular D20 that's like from one no. to 20? Yeah, I think it's got different ranges. I was going to say, I don't. It's not punishing enough that you just happen to roll a one, even when you're in fifth gear or whatever. All of the dice are unique. I think the D20 may top out at 14 and have kind of a bell curve. Okay. But still, that's... Actually, it'll be... Maybe it may start at seven or eight for that mm-hmm. top gear or something. But it's like the top is like 29. Really? Well, I'm okay. looking at a picture of the dice and it's all so it's 20s. just a 29? Oh, man. Okay, there must be a higher gear that we never used. <laughs> I mean, yeah, high gears are rough Although, to pull off. Twenty nine. If you are in lowest gear, it's a D four that ranges between one and two, all the way up to six gear, which is a D twenty between twenty one and thirty. Oof. Huh, oh, man. Okay, you're really, really confident if you're pulling that off. <laughs> thirty that's... spaces. Oh, yeah, and it's not like you oh, can jump. Some from of the top. tracks, maybe. Maybe, the long ones, but like it's not like you could jump from like <laughs> sixth gear to first gear in one move. <laughs> mm. And I really like that the tracks are all based on like actual tracks as well. And they published every track, I mm-hmm. swear. There were so many tracks for that game. Yeah. This is a really fun one, though, because there are people who really love this game and have just done like all of these kind of like customized upgrades. And if you go through the Geek, you can see some really cool, really cool Formula D setups. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are some very committed fans to this one, for sure. And then there's something a little lighter. Yeah, so then we go into the 2002 release of Magical Athlete. Uh, And that was done by Takashi Ishida and published by Grimoire, Japan Brand, and in America, Zeman Games. So this game is a racing game that is preceded by a bidding game? It's been a minute. Yeah, it's more of a drafting game. 
So before you trace, everybody's going to draft a character. Actually, you draft a team at the start of the game. It's like five and then characters. Race each of them. And then yeah. each one gets one race to participate in. You're going to play like four or five races. Each of the characters has a unique ability. For like example, one of them is you can always just move five spaces instead of rolling a dice. And then others are like swap spaces with other things. It, you can affect the race in some way. And that that's it. Each race takes five minutes. Not yeah. very long. Yeah, the races themselves, base mechanics are laughably simple. It's like, you roll a die and you move your racer that many spaces. But the special powers and the interactions of the special powers are what gets great. I mean, when you get a vampire and a ninja and a siren and a dragon all racing each other and all using their special powers to do random stuff to each other, it's not a highly strategic game, but it is a surprising amount of fun. I think the siren is something like whenever you move, you may move any other character like two spaces towards you, whether it be front or back. There's a lot of stuff going on. And yeah. there's there's a ton of characters in it. I think there's like 30? And there's an expansion. So. Oh, okay. For the Jeff Von Brand one. I can't remember. I think they included the Seaman one. Because when I picked it up, I can't remember. I got it from a contact in Japan when I got the Japanese version. Which is curiously spelled with an extra E in athlete. Yeah, athlete. <laughs> which I insist is part of the original name. <laughs> and in fact, we've been fighting currently while we're recording in the, um, <laughs> the spreadsheet. The spreadsheet over the spelling. <laughs> I'm looking at the box I have and it doesn't have that extra E, but. Oh, mine does now. Yeah, our box okay. has the extra E. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. <laughs> it's the Berenstain Bears effect. <laughs> yeah, totally. But when I brought it to the table, it's like, you know, this is either the worst game ever made or the best. And reading the rules, I can't tell. I really can't tell. <laughs> it's certainly not a game to take seriously. No. But if you have 20 minutes and you want to bust a game out with people with a sense of humor who don't really care who wins, it can be a lot of fun. Yep. Then for something that takes considerably longer, we have Runebound. This came out in 2004 from Fantasy Flight Games, designed by Daryl Hardy and Martin Wallace, of all people. There was a second edition that came out in 2005, which is slightly changed. I think the main thing is they used 2D10 instead of a D20 for the rolls. This is basically a... And they did a third edition, which removes oh, the mechanic we're going to talk about. Yeah. Oh. The third edition is actually the best one. Oh, okay. But... The reason we want to talk about it here is because it did something that I thought was pretty unique until Frank started talking about Nietzsche. Runebound is a big old fantasy adventure game set in the standard fantasy flight universe. Terranoth? Is that what they call it? Yes, thank you. Terranoth. So basically, you are traveling around and fighting monsters and collecting runes and trying to gather enough stuff that you can beat the big bad at the end of the game. This is all pretty traditional. You know, it's got staged encounter decks. So, you, you know, the farther you go into the board, the more dangerous the stuff you fight. What makes it interesting and what puts it on this list is the way you do movement. There is a set of five terrain dice, and each side has one or more symbols on it that can be roads or rivers or forests or swamp or plains. And basically, you roll those dice at the start of your turn, and you basically place them in order, like, if I'm moving into a forest space, I have to place one of the dice that I've rolled a forest on. Or if I go into a mountain, I need to play a mountain space. So you need to sort of 
adjust the movement abilities you have with where you are on the board and try and figure out how to get where you need to go. It is a fun mechanic. It did slow the game down rather a lot, which I think is why it was removed. Yeah. So we always went into the thing that's like, as soon as you have decided where you're going to move, the next person should roll the dice and start playing their movement while you resolve your encounter or whatever it is. I think that was actually in the rule book. So yeah. It could be, yeah. But you know, it's a fairly generic fantasy adventure game. It was a pretty good one. Yeah. The second edition was better than the first. I remember being quite annoyed by it because I had just bought the first and started to get a couple of the expansions when they released the second. And of course, the expansions were no longer compatible. But yeah, I thought it was kind of a unique movement mechanic and uh, quite liked it. I do like the uh, Tiernock games. I don't know why. I like Rune Wars for sure. I've enjoyed all of them. I think I have enjoyed all of them as well. There's so many good games. And I mean, it's just their own universe. They can reuse art and they don't have to... Oh, they're big fans of that. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, if you can make a library of assets that you can use across all your properties, that's not really a bad thing. Always a good plan. Yep. All right, Frank, I think you got another one for us. Yay. So that's life in 2005. This is Robinsberger and designed by someone. No, 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 no. We really didn't plan this one, did we? What do you mean, we? Oh, yeah. All right. Good point. A um, couple guys named Kiesling and Cromer. Yes. You may have heard of them. <laughs> Designed by Michael Kiesling, Wolfgang Cromer. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of Wolfgang Cromer in here. And this is very backgammony. I mean, goose, whatever. You have a whole line of tiles, which you're going to be moving over. You get four pawns each, and you've got some neutral pawns that are sitting on tiles. And basically, on your turn, you roll a couple of dice and you get to move a couple of your pawns. The object here is to get the most points. And you only get points by taking the tile you're on when you're the last piece that moves off that tile. What's important here is that an awful lot of the tiles are negative points. And, well, that's a big core of the game. So sometimes you're forced to move off of the positive point tiles. But, you know, if everyone moves off and you've got a guy sitting on the negative point tiles, you're just going to have to, well, suck down the minus points. (laughs) There are also neutral pawns which can be moved to help cover and basically you know free up a tile so you can move Uh, and you're allowed to move the neutral pawns that's it it's a fairly simple game the choices are a little tricky because you know you can move the neutral pawns and once the neutral pawns pass you it's like oh yeah i'm gonna have to take that so it is a spectacularly vicious game so it's like there's a whole stretch in the beginning where things get increasingly negative and then kind of a neutral patch and then a big positive stretch. So the board is definitely sort of zoned, it looks like. Although I guess, is it a random setup? Usually it was a fixed setup. Okay. But the later versions actually made just made it a random setup, which is interesting. I've generally played it with I don't know if it setups. did. It actually, they all look kind of the same way. So it's yeah. probably a f- fixed board, which of course gets shorter as people go. You know, this reminds me a lot of what's the scuba diving? I was going to say deep sea adventure. Yeah, it's got it the reminds same thing. me a lot of deep sea adventure. Yeah, a little I bit. I see that. going forward, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's you know one of those that would easily have replaced Sorry Monopoly. It feels like it's in that weight and like a classic family game. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's definitely a lot more agency because of how you're moving and strategy because you have to track, you know. How many of the neutral pawns are going? 
Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a rather deeper game for that. Yeah, I really have to call out the... Uh, I'm looking at some of the, some people have taken pictures of the punch boards with the actual tiles. The art on these are great. They look like uh, newspaper comic strips sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like little humorous comic strips. And like, uh, they're just a little, like a lot of them have little gags, especially the negative ones. They have great yeah. gags. Yeah. Like there's, <laughs> there's a kid, I guess, potty training, breaking the... the uh, oh, no. The he's, he's learning to, to be into. <laughs> yeah. These are great. Oh, Jason. I mean, it doesn't take much to entertain me. You know that. <laughs> and then there's a positive one I really like where it's like a, you're at a winner's podium with first, second, third, and then the fourth oh, yeah. Fourth is like, <laughs> he's got a huge podium towering over all of them. I like that a lot. That's great. It's like the <laughs> yeah. guy with the champagne bottle meme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Come to think of it, I think you get points for being first, second, third, like minus points or something. And maybe oh. if you're fourth, you get points. And the best points is like for fourth. That's hilarious. There's been a few different variants and versions for how scoring and and how the scoring layout works. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it looks cute. It does look cute. Totally. Okay, Jason, want to play us out? Yeah, yeah. So the the, kind of the last one here that really doesn't match up with most of the things we've talked about is a Kickstarter called Islands of El Dorado, or excuse me, Island of El Dorado, released in 2018 by Daniel Aronson from Eldorado Games, which you, you can guess from the name, that's probably the first game he designed. <laughs> the idea here is you're playing different explorers that are going to this island, trying to find the fabled riches of Eldorado. And the way you do that is by discovering shrines on the island, putting offerings on the shrines, and then finding the last shrine and controlling all the shrines on the island. That's the gameplay goal in a nutshell. You do that by moving your explorer around, exploring tiles, creating farms to gather resources from those tiles, and battling other people to push them out of places you want to control or trying to beat them to finding the final shrine inside of the caves. Where it becomes a a rolling move is the idea of you have these two they call the golden dice, where you roll both of them, they're just standard d6s, and one of those dice will be how many spaces your explorer can move, and the other dice will be how many resources you can collect from the tiles you're able to collect resources from. So there's kind of a constant balancing mechanism of, okay, I really want to move far or get somewhere in particular or explore unflipped tiles versus I need to collect these resources so I can build my farms or I can build my uh, gifts for the offerings for the shrines so I can take control of them or build forts to help me in battles in the future and that sort of thing. So it's just kind of an interesting twist on just rolling a single die, rolling two die and just moving. You actually have a choice to make where you're trying to say, okay, well, I really need these resources right now versus I really need to get to this far side of the island so I can go fight Mike or something. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It reminds me a little bit of something like Macau, which, of course, is one of my old favorites, where it's like, you know, you have to commit to what do I need right now versus how much am I doing getting other things. It looks interesting. The components look really nice. I love the little meeples. There's like a cavalry meeple yeah. and a, a <laughs> the dude a little fort. Yeah, no, it's very cool. Yeah, a classic Kickstarter, massively overproduced for no reason. But uh, I did, oh, well, I did sure. like uh, the designs of the stuff. Interesting enough, in one of the later expansions, they came up with a rule for people who don't like the randomness of the die rolls for movement and resource generation. And so what they did is, as an optional rule, you can receive six points, and you can spend those points however you want to divvy up between your movement and your resources. So it's yeah. it's guaranteed, yeah, okay. but it's lower than average that you'd roll on two dice, so I don't know if it's ever a good idea, but for I people... mean, for people like us, it probably <laughs> yeah. is. I'm a big fan of this approach, and I wish more companies would do that. But yeah, 
I thought it was interesting that they, they added that because like there's definitely some feedback where people are like this is really random. Uh, <laughs> I don't like the randomness, so they fixed it. No, but yeah, I uh, just thought it was an interesting twist on on roll and move since you have to make a decision <laughs> instead of just okay, I'm gonna move in this direction now. And the board seems fairly small. Yeah, yeah, there's a set number of tiles. So basically, the shrines are hidden within the tiles, and then there's a mm-hmm. set of what they call cave tiles, which is where you find the final shrine. Most of the caves are empty, so it's just kind of a time waster. I think one of them has a wolf or something in it where you have to fight it, and then one of them will be the actual final shrine that you're trying to uh, put your offering on to, to take control of it. So, yeah, not a huge board, and it could be even smaller if you find all the shrines quickly. So when you're moving, you don't have to move in a straight line, right? Oh, no, not at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, the only rule is that the, any new tiles you place have to be touching two other tiles. So it does kind of constrain what kind of shapes the island can be, but not, not okay. too much. All right, I got you. I remember this game being, like, physically small, too. Uh, yeah, it fit in this. Well, it used to fit into a small box, and they released, like, three expansions or two expansions for it. So much bigger okay. box now. But yeah, originally it was a small box, and that was kind of the intention. If anybody's ever seen the box for um, Set a Watch... Oh, sure. It fit in one of oh, those wow. boxes, right? Okay. Uh, I think it was a little bit bigger than that, but similar similar footprint, certainly. So these little hex tiles are like an inch across-ish? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. One huh. of the uh, fascinating things that the, uh, to, talking about cutting costs, so if you look at the art in the game, none of that was commissioned art. It's all like Public used domain. with permission of existing uh, art okay. pieces. I think it was a pretty savvy choice, for, especially for a first-time game designer, to just find all these yeah. essentially public domain arts. And he also found, I mean, the styles are fairly consistent, so it wasn't really jarring. Like, I didn't even realize it until I read something about it. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, okay, these are existing pieces of art that he just happened to curate very cleverly. Yeah, and some of them are very nice. Mm-hmm. There's like this sea cave painting that I really dig. Hmm. Huh, fascinating. Which is especially interesting, because as part of the Kickstarter, they released an art book. Yeah, I don't know how that works. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know... This is a book of the art we used in the game. <laughs> yeah. None of which we own. <laughs> Worst stretch goal ever. Yeah, Always. I don't know. There are some, like, if Scythe had been a Kickstarter, I might have bought an art book of that. True, you're right. Yeah. There are very few games that I'm like, yes, I want art pieces of this game. You're correct. Very few. You know, Tales from the Loop. Especially sure. okay, yes. physical media. There are very few games that can come out with other physical media that I want. Yeah, that's fair. Oh no, Mysterium? I want a lot of those cards as paintings to hang in my Sure, I would do that. I would do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, even an art book of Mysterium or, gosh, what's the one that Mysterium's based off of? Dixit. Dixit. Yeah. That'd be fine. Mm -hmm. That would be a good use of an art book. Yeah. Especially I if there were some thing existing. I especially if there art. was some commentary in there of like, what were you thinking when you drew this? <laughs> but like, what I do not want is like terraforming Mars, the <laughs> art book. <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. All right. Well, I think that concludes our list of Roland moves. I hope it was worth the wait. And I say that mostly for Frank, because I'm not sure how many of you, our listeners, were actually waiting for it. <laughs> I mean, Frank's going to go listen to it. It's going to be great. Oh, sure. That's true. That's true. I've lived um, it. I don't. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So, uh, Frank, I think you've already said that you think Fast Food Franchise is the best roll and move game ever. Yep. Absolutely. What favorites do other people have? Sandy, do you have... Uh... 
I have trouble narrowing things down to favorites because it kind of depends on which personality is driving on any given day. Fair enough. (laughs) But I have a real soft spot for roller moves because my personal collection is mostly old horror children's games. Mm -hmm. And most of those are roller moves, you know, Witch Witch and... Uh, Green Ghost and all of those are just roller moves, and they're not very good games, but I still have a great affection for them. They're fun experiences, for sure. Of all the ones that we've talked about, and even more generally, the games that I can think of, the one on this list that I, I'm i like, I want to play that, probably Formula Day? Okay. It's a solid racing game. Yeah, for sure. It's been around for a long time and uh, held up a good pattern. How about you, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I'm just a copy off of Mike. I think Formula D, Formula Day, whatever. It's simple enough. I love the uh, the little gear shifting components where you just change gears, that little physical component that they have. What's not on this list, and I'm shocked Mike didn't think of it, Shadows of Brimstone is technically a roll to move. <laughs> no. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but as we previously found out in the last time we played that... Not a great experience for roll to move. Not a great game. Oh no, no. no, uh, no it's not and I will say... It's not nearly as much fun talking about Shadows of Brimstone when Joe is not here. That's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he loves uh, it or hates it. Hates, <laughs> it. hates it. Hates it. Much like any game I recommend to Joe, he hates it. Uh, you know, because I don't hate Shadows of Brimstone. It's not that bad. Mm, we recently <laughs> replayed it. It was pretty bad. Uh-oh, it has not aged well for you? It has not aged well. It is not. Okay. But, like, the worst part about it, is I can see the good game from where it is. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be your your summer project to fix that game, Mike. How's that come along? It was. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> For my favorite, I'm actually going to go all the way back and play old school. I like Backgammon. It's just a very solid game. It's a good mix of dice and, yeah. and strategy. And there's a reason it stuck around for 5,000 years. It's a, it's a good game. I agree. I love Backgammon. Yeah. yeah. It's good stuff. So that is about all we have for this time. Not sure what we'll be doing next. We may revisit another older episode. We may find something new and exciting to talk about. If you have suggestions, as always, come check out the Ascent of Board Games or ascentofboardgames.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. We even have a Discord server that we theoretically use sometimes. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm on it. I, I look in case people say things, but it's very quiet. But uh, yeah, we'd love to hear what you think. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love an iTunes review, because those always help us find new listeners. And if nothing else, everybody stay safe out there, and we will talk to you again next month. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hi, folks. Brian here with a special request. We're coming up on our 50th episode. It's very exciting for all of us. And we're hoping to get a little bit more interactive with this episode. So if there are any games or types of games that you want us to talk about, or if you have any particular opinions that you think we're very wrong about, or just anything you want to share with us coming up for that 50th episode, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on our Facebook page, you can contact us at ascentofboardgames.com, or email ascentofboardgames at gmail.com. If you want to record yourself asking the question or making the comment, feel free to send us a file of that, and we can include you directly in the episode. Or just let us know what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear us talk about. I can't guarantee that everybody's going to get on the show, but we'd like to hear what you have to say, and we'd like to talk about what you want to hear us talk about. So, if you want to contribute to episode number 50, drop us a line. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. 
Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. There's all kinds of... What? Good. Finish that thought. Uh, nope, it's gone.